Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. So, a few weeks ago, we had the chance to talk about the life and work of Jack Kerouac with Steve Eddington. And of course, you can't talk about Kerouac without at least a mention of the city of Lowell, Massachusetts. This week, we actually have the privilege to get put to get to put more focus specifically on the Franco-American story in Lowell. Joining us this week is Suzanne Beebe, a Franco-American born and raised in Lowell, a member of the Lowell Celebrates Kerouac crew, and the secretary of the Lowell Franco-American Day Committee, which I'm looking forward to speaking about. She has also been published in Le Forum, which is obviously a publication put out by the University of Maine that we have spoken about quite a bit on this podcast. Suzanne, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Yo, happy to be here. So, Normally, we start interviews of the podcast by asking a guest where they're from. Well, spoiler, we've already talked about where you are from. But perhaps you could tell us a little bit about kind of what the neighborhood looks like in Lowell when you were growing up. Okay. First of all, um, my my father's parents in 1927, I believe, built a little cottage-type house on the very outskirts of Lowell, where there was not a French neighborhood. It was, and as I went to school over the years, the neighborhood, all the vacant lots of which there were many started filling in. But for the most part in the upper highlands, which is the neighborhood, that we were in. Probably amongst the Catholic population, it was mostly Irish. So I went to what was considered, quote, an Irish parish and attended the elementary school attached to the parish. And most of the children were of Irish descent. So my upbringing was not typical Now, the other neighborhoods in Lowell, particularly Little Canada, Centerville, and Pawtucketville, were heavily, heavily French. But they were filled with a lot of little cottage bungalow houses. So probably in that respect, there was a similarity. But that feeling of being in the middle of a French neighborhood was not there for me. My sense of being French came from visits to my grandmother's every Sunday or twice a month, hearing her and the aunts and uncles speaking French. My parents never spoke French at home. They could understand it if it was being spoken. So in that respect, you know, my childhood was somewhat bifurcated. (laughs) You know, there was the French side and there was the, quote, Mm, kind of Irish side. And then the street on which we lived um, was sprinkled with a number of, there was like an old Yankee couple, uh, an older Jewish couple. There was uh, a Norwegian people with Scandinavian background. Um, There were 
uh, actually several older English-type families. Then there was my French family and the family across the street that was French. So it was kind of like a true mixture of different nationalities on one street. Sure. No, that's interesting. And I didn't actually, I didn't know that, but so I thought it's cool that you, so you went to an Irish parish in an right. Irish school. Was there not the uh, conflict, I guess? Cause we always hear in Manchester that there's always a lot of conflicts between the French and the Irish. And I know a lot of the Franco-Americans were not leaving the house on St. Patrick's day, for instance, they're not celebrating any of that. So right. isn't that went way, way back. You know, that may have been truer in Centerville and Pawtucketville. I'm not really sure. I could talk to people. I've heard uh, from a man who grew up right in the neighborhood of the Visions of Gerard novel, and he was talking once about the kids going to St. Louis de France school, of which he was one, and how sometimes there would be fights with the kids in the public school, many of whom, you know, would either have been English or Irish American. So they were, they always trod very carefully as they, as they went by the public school. But because our neighborhood was like more on the fringes of the city, more more uh, residential in a kind of suburbanizing way. Um, There was not as much of that. But interestingly, you know, like some of the French kids clearly felt that they were regarded as second-class citizens. So maybe their families were having different experiences in the neighborhood they were coming from. You know, it's all very interesting. And actually, you know, like one or two nuns occasionally would express, hmm, you just get little hints of of us being regarded as not quite like the in-nationality where we were. Yeah. So, you know, like it's just very odd, but I can't say that my experiences um, were negative in terms of the Irish-French thing. I got you. Well, one thing you did mention was the Visions of Gerard neighborhood, which is something you've written about. Um, So if you could maybe explain what is Visions of Gerard, just kind of as a refresh, and then tell us what that neighborhood looks like now. Well, first of all, Visions of Gerard is a very, very short novel in a thinly fictionalized account of the Kerouac family experience in which Jack's nine-year-old brother, in the last year of his life, at nine years old, was essentially dying as the year went on. Jack would have been four years old. They were living on a little street called Beauvais Street. No, no, uh, Bollier Street, which is right beside Beauvais, where St. Louis de France School, St. Louis de France Church, and St. Louis de France Rectory were all situated on one side of that little street. The streets are exactly the same length, and there is uh, a little bend where there would have been the public school, 
at the bend there. It's a neighborhood of the kind of small cottage-type homes that my own grandfather had built way out in a different neighborhood, although many of these have a second floor. Um, And they're all pretty densely packed. I think there are some larger, I don't know if they are three-deckers, I'm trying to visualize, but there are some larger, more apartment style. But, you know, the, the little cottages predominate. And that was a factor of the neighborhood growing as a result of the French in Little Canada and other central parts of Lowell moving across the river as they had the money. Um, and either building the little homes themselves or renting them from people who were building them. But it's a very densely, densely packed neighborhood, except for the parcel of land on which the whole St. Louis de France complex was built. So it would have been a mixture. There was still some farmland, which you can read about, I think, in Visions of Gerard and certainly in Dr. Sachs, because Centerville had been carved out of Dracut and annexed by the city of Lowell so that the inner city population could expand that way. So it's that kind of a neighborhood, and particularly because of um, uh, that, that neighborhood was built by French developers, because you notice Beaulieu and Beauvais, those were the names of the two men who started building the little homes there. And um, one of them also donated the land for the church to grow. So that particular neighborhood was probably totally French. And you can read, you get a real sense of what life in the neighborhood was like as you read Visions of Gerard. So it's a great novel. For me, it was my starter novel for Kerouac. I I was interested because I was French-Canadian on both sides. And, you know, that was my starting point with Kerouac. Whereas for many people, the starting point is on the road or Dama Bums or, you know, like that branch of his writing. Sure. I will confess that on the road being the how I picked up Kerouac for sure. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Okay. I would like to talk a little bit more about the visions of Gerard neighborhood, if we could, um, because I know growing up in Manchester, a lot of times my grandfather would say even that in the neighborhood, there was really no need at all to ever speak English. Cause in addition, you had your, you mentioned there was like the church and the school in that neighborhood, but they also had like the banks and the markets and all that this kind of stuff in French too. Was that the same kind of thing in that Visions of Gerard neighborhood? I suspect it probably was, um, although it wasn't as solidly French beyond that specific little neighborhood. Um, so maybe there were stores, you know, owned by other nationalities, but certainly in little Canada, that would have been the case where they could live their whole lives without ever having to talk English. For sure. And I definitely want to get to that little Canada discussion. Absolutely. Uh, but just real quick, how much is the 
If we're going to go today, how much of that vision of Girard neighborhood is still there? If Kerouac would have come back, you know, this afternoon, how much would he recognize of that neighborhood? I think he would recognize most of it. Uh, my perception is that none of the housing that was built in that specific small neighborhood has been knocked down. There has been more built around it and beyond the neighborhood, but I think it's still pretty much what he would have seen as a kid. And of course, his family moved over to Pawtucketville about the time he would have been in the fifth or sixth grade, perhaps. Um, and at that point, Pawtucketville also was expanding. So, but, you know, like whatever has been built, not too much has been knocked down, except in Little Canada. That's a whole different story. Yeah. And I appreciate you providing that transition because honestly, what happened to Little Canada in Lowell was a story I did not know at all prior to starting this podcast. It was something I learned about recently, which I think is unfortunate because I think it's something that all of us should know for sure. It's kind of a sad tale. Uh, first of all, can you tell us where Little Canada was in Lowell, kind of what it looked like, and then, spoiler, what happened to it? Okay, it was a densely populated neighborhood. It was, uh, I have seen in city sources that it was probably the second most densely inhabited neighborhood in the U.S. at oh, wow. the time. At the time, after um, I think it's the East Side in New York City, one of the New York City neighborhoods. That's how dense it was. I know people, elderly people, of course, uh, who grew up in Little Canada in the huge three-deckers that would have had six full family units. There would have been a door for the units on one side, a door for the units on the other side. And of course, the families were huge. Right. So there could have been 50 to 60 kids in one, under one, uh, six six apartment um, unit. So you figure if there were all those families with seven, 10, 12, 16 children, you had a high population density. It probably wasn't that dense at the point where urban renewal set in, in the 1960s, early 70s those three-decker tenements were getting knocked down left and right. There are pictures in archives, I think perhaps UMass Lowell archives, of the neighborhood as the housing was being demolished. And essentially, there are some pictures which look like the aftermath of a World War II bombing. You can see smoke rising. You can see the, the rubble. I mean, it was just really an awful process. It was in the heyday of urban renewal, very similar to what happened in the West End in Boston mm -hmm. with the whole neighborhood. And people who were deeply invested in the lives of those neighborhoods still feel the loss now. You know, like in the West End in Boston, there is even an association where people go back and, uh, 
you know, they have reunions and many of them are still in touch with each other. So Little Canada, the demolition of Little Canada was very much like that. I was a kid growing up and I remember the articles in the Lowell Sun where the uh, Lowell Historical Association was trying to save the even earlier row housing that the mill girls would have been living in even before the French Canadians started settling heavily in the neighborhood. It was just a tremendous loss. And now it's looking better and better. It's going to be built up in a different way. But, you know, you can't help but envision what if more of the original housing had been preserved Because what it did was in gutting the whole French Canadian population there, it destroyed the uh, population of St. Jean-Baptiste Church, which served the whole little Canada neighborhood. I mean, it, it was just appalling. And everybody can look back now with 2020 vision and say, oh, you know, That never should have happened, but it's the way urban renewal was being conducted at that point in time. You just went in and destroyed a whole neighborhood and put some multifamily government housing in at least one portion of it, which is what happened in Lowell. Yeah, no, it is kind of crazy for me. um, Maybe you could at least explain to anybody who's headed to Lowell, recently been to Lowell, kind of what's there now. Because for uh, I had been to I had coached I used to coach rugby so I had coached rugby in that area a, a bunch of times having no idea that I was now in what had been Little Canada so mm-hmm. you just kind of explain what 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 does it look like now? There have been a lot of vacant parcels. There has been the government housing closer to the canal, which has been there for a long time now. People have settled in. It's been like uh, remodeled on the surface a number of times. So it's decent looking housing, but not as dense. A bit of the old row housing from the mill days, Mm -hmm. very little bit is there. But Merrimack Street itself has been a hodgepodge on one end of some of the surviving three-deckers, a few of which have been knocked down because the university in Lowell just keeps expanding. Um, But now, just recently, um, more and more buildings on Merrimack Street have been knocked down because the Jeanne d'Arc Credit Union um, is doing a big redevelopment and putting putting in... um, Mixed, mixed use. I mean, it'll probably be quite useful when it's all done. But right now, there are just gaping holes in the Merrimack Street landscape. It's obviously a neighborhood that's in transition again. You know, we'll see what happens as it comes out. <laughs> and that is, that's kind of wild to me that the Jean d'Arc Credit Union is kind of contributing to all of this. Well, actually, they're probably improving what's been there in the recent past. Um, And they're a key, you know, like they are 
a very solid institution. They've been expanding and expanding, and they do have the interests of the neighborhood seemingly at heart. Good. So we'll see how it all comes out. For sure. Now, you mentioned the Jean-Baptiste Church. Is that still standing? Or, and if so, kind of what is it used for? Oh, yes, very much so. It's still standing. And you're aware, of course, that that's the building that the Kerouac Foundation is hoping to acquire from the current owner, renovate the building, restore it, upgrade it, and turn it into a Kerouac performance and arts center, perhaps with other organizations um, also situated in the building. That's all under discussion right now. The first job there is to get enough money to purchase the building. But the building um, has been looked at by a number of architects who have done that kind of work. And they say it's in very, very good shape. It's not, um, you know, obviously it needs a lot of um, surface work. It needs upgrading, but the physical structure itself is very solid and in very good condition. I don't know if you've seen photos of the interior. The interior is still quite spectacular, even though it's been empty for a long, long time. When you walk into the upper sanctuary space, it kind of takes your breath away even now. And I could send you links later on, you know, where you could do like a virtual tour um, that actually the current owner had done when he acquired the building back in the early 2000s. What happened was that um, the church, the original Jean-Baptiste parish had been hmm, struggling a bit financially, but they still thought that they could keep the whole thing going. Um, There was a, a bit of debt that, again, they thought that they would be able to deal with. Um, But in the meantime, the numbers, because of what had happened in Little Canada, the numbers kept going down in terms of the original French parishioners. So the archdiocese closed it as a parish in, I think it was 1997, and later gave it over to a Hispanic parish, which was looking for a home, and they were delighted to have it, and they were trying to keep it going. But in 2004, the Archdiocese of Boston was having uh, tremendous problems with supplying priests to parishes and throughout the archdiocese, et cetera. They decided they had to close parishes in Lowell and Jean-Baptiste was one of the parishes that was closed. And a year or two later, it was bought by a developer uh, who has owned it since then. And he was hoping that the whole neighborhood at a certain point would be getting redeveloped in the way it is now, ironically, to some extent on Merrimack Street. But he was hoping that eventually he would be able to market the church itself 
as a performance center of some kind where people would have weddings, performances, et cetera, et cetera. But there was never enough to make a go of it. And he has heroically, I think, hung onto the building for a long, long time, not wanting to carve that space up and turn it into condos or apartments, which he could do. And recently he was at the point where he was ready to do that, you know, because he's been paying taxes on the property all this time. And just at that point, the Kerouac Foundation decided to pursue the building. And we've been talking to him. He's open to the possibility, but we have to come up with the money to purchase the building. That's step number one. So that could really, really add to that whole renewal of the little Canada neighborhood if that building could be upgraded and start attracting visitors and um, performance goers, et cetera, museum goers. Sure. You know, so a lot lies in the future. That would be huge for the Franco population in that city. Now, that's really, really cool. I did want to ask, because you talked about the diocese closing down a whole bunch of churches that absolutely happened up here, too. Are there any left that still offer the French Mass? Short answer, no. 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 Occasionally, um, the Franco-American Committee, of which I'm a member and the secretary, for our Franco Festival each June, we do plan um, a Mass all in French. But it gets harder and harder to find priests who can do the Mass in French. That's always a bit of a dance. We have one priest right now who is himself not Franco-American. Oh, wow. but he, he's a member of the Marist order, which was originally a French order. And he has studied in France. And his French is quite beautiful to listen to. I bet. Um, so he's the guy that we have right now to do our masses. But in terms of a regularly scheduled Mass in French, that has not been the case for mm, probably since the 1990s. Or oh, wow. Very early 2000s. Gosh, yeah, we have one left here in Manchester. St. Antoine, right? You got it. Absolutely. <laughs> Sunday mornings. Yeah, Father Dion. I'm sure he'd come down and say a Mass for you guys in French. Well, actually, I contacted him once. But oh, I cool. I think he has his hands full with his own. He probably uh, does. Yes, right. right. He I gave think... me a very polite, can't do it. <laughs> but right, I appreciated enough. the fact that he responded. He was very nice to do that. It is interesting to see how the history, at least of a lot of these towns, have evolved. Because I think the reason that mass continues here in Manchester is because the African population that came into town looking for a French mass. It just so happened to be, you know, St. Antoine still offered one. So that's mm-hmm. how kind of how it was allowed to keep going. That's great. That's great. Yeah. It is kind of fun too, because that was the home parish of the guy who's now the Cardinal of Quebec who grew up uh-huh. in Manchester. Yeah. Very Cardinal good. Lacroix. But yeah, no, so super interesting. Um, before we get to the, I want to talk about more like the, the Franco-American committee down in Lowell and what you guys are up to today. I did want to touch on one more thing first. 
Uh, you wrote about a character in, that I did not know about, a gentleman that I did not know about in the Le Forum, Father Andre Guerin. And just reading your description, he was an enormous, enormous deal to that to your area. Can you just explain who he was and kind of the impact? Because obviously it was huge. You know, you really can't understand uh, the growth of the Franco-American community in Lowell without being aware of Father Garin, because his fingerprints are all over the place. The man was absolutely amazing. And by all accounts, genuinely very saintly. You know, he was just loved by everybody. Sure. Um, So the story is that um, up until the Civil War, The mills in Lowell, uh, the workers of the mills in Lowell, were to a great extent New England Yankee farm girls who were recruited from all over New England to come earn money, earn money for getting married, whatever, help their families out in the rural areas of New England. That was the the main bulk of the, uh, the labor force. Um, But as the mills grew, the mill owners were needing more workers. And then the American Civil War occurred. After the Civil War, all of a sudden, industry exploded, particularly the textile industry. And the mill workers in Lowell and elsewhere really, really needed a lot of workers fast. There were Irish Americans, of course, but the mill work, um, the mill owners began to send recruiters up to Quebec and other areas of French-speaking France, uh, Canada, and heavily advertised that you know you could earn a good living for your family in Lowell. So the trickle of French Canadian immigrants from Quebec began. And it quickly began turning into a flood. So in 1868, the Archbishop of Boston at the time, Archbishop Williams, got in contact with the uh, superior of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate in Canada and asked if he could send some priest to come down and start saying mass for the Francos in Lowell. And he did that. And the first two priests were Father Garin and um, his companion, whose name escapes me at the moment. But Father Garin preached a retreat with his companion at St. Patrick's Church in Lowell, which was the mother church of the Irish Americans there. Sure. Um, and it was a great success. And the French people wanted him to stay and he did. In short order, he raised enough money from the French Canadians who were there in Lowell. And it was a fairly small population. It might have just been in the Lowell, uh, low, uh, maybe two or three thousands at that point, if that much. And he promptly bought an unused uh, Unitarian church that is on a little street right across from the original Lowell High School. And he converted it for Catholic use and the French people in Lowell had a place to go to for mass. 
And from there, he also started going out to surrounding parishes and to actually Irish neighborhoods in Lowell. And um, he was directly responsible for getting the Immaculate Conception Church on East Merrimack, which was uh, an Irish church. He got that built. Um, he started a little parish for Irish mill workers in Belrica, St. Andrew's Parish. At a certain point, he saw that as little Canada was becoming more and more densely populated, he decided that he needed to build a church there, and that became Jean-Baptiste. He also, I forget whether he himself or after his death, uh, the Oblates of Mary, Mary Immaculate also went across the river and established St. Jean d'Arc Church. Um, he was also very instrumental. He himself got the French cemetery in Chelmsford. He purchased that land. So that is St. Joseph's Cemetery in Chelmsford, very beautiful cemetery. And he had his finger in all these different pies. He was just amazing. And there are stories about him walking down Merrimack Street with an overcoat that he just, as long as it was usable, he was not going to get a new overcoat. You know, awesome. people would kind of joke about it, but they were impressed, you know, <laughs> and he was so intimately involved in the lives of his parishioners, probably in ways that modern day people wouldn't appreciate, but he was their father. They regarded him as their father. And he died in 1895, I believe. And at his burial, his funeral service, the idea was floated that there should be a statue to him. And um, that immediately got underway and everybody like Irish Catholics, uh, Yankees, the old Yankees in Lowell, who mm -hmm. had really appreciated how he set a tone for the city and its immigrant populations, um, etc. Um, so within a year, raising donations from all parts of the population in Lowell, that statue was ready to go and it was erected in 1896. And the statue still stands outside St. Jean-Baptiste. And because St. Jean-Baptiste was made a part of the Lowell Historical District, unless something were to change, his statue is going to have to stand outside that church. That's awesome. <laughs> no, no matter what happens. And That's awesome. Yeah. If you remember the statue, Jesse. I do. Um, it's kind of a heroic size. It's a little larger than life size. Yep. And, um, you know, it's, it's just very interesting because how many church pastors get a statue of that nature? Not many. Erected in nope. their honor within a year of their passing. It just speaks for the kind of man he was and the role he played in the development of Lowell 
Yeah, no, it's, I mean, even reading your article, I remember tens of thousands came out for his funeral, businesses in the city closed down so that people could attend his funeral. Obviously just a gentleman with an enormous impact, like as you suggested, way beyond just the Franco-American community. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's amazing. And selfishly, I need to plug St. Joseph Cemetery a couple of reasons. One, it's on our geo tour, which we send people through in the city yes. of Lowell. Yeah. And, and obviously, very selfishly, I actually have a set of great great grandparents who are buried oh, in that. Wow. So I have been I have been through that cemetery, and as you mentioned, it is absolutely beautiful. It really is. It's it's like um, a smaller version of the famous what they call garden cemeteries, like mm-hmm. Mount uh, Audubon or what is it the oh the very famous one in Boston, and there's one in Cincinnati which is very much like it, where it's just a lovely landscaped place, you know, and it, you could. People do just go to take walks um, and uh, just beautiful landscaping. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Now, I did want, before we ended this conversation for sure, I want to talk about what's going on in the Lowell community, the Franco Lowell community today. So oh. obviously, I did the introduction, we talked to, and introduced the Franco-American Day Committee in Lowell. Um, but maybe you can tell us about that committee, what that committee does, and even bigger picture, what does the Franco scene look like in Lowell today? I would say that the Franco scene in Lowell probably has a big question mark hanging over its head uh, because all the older folks who grew up in the French neighborhoods, who grew up in families where French was being spoken, who might have attended the French Catholic schools, that population is passing off the scene. Many of them are in their Oh, at the youngest, their 60s, probably. And obviously, their children are much more assimilated, have not gone to the French schools, probably did not hear French being spoken at home. So that whole sense of uh, being Franco-American is fading amongst the younger group. And unless there are more people like you, (laughs) Jesse... To fill their places. You know, we honestly don't know where it's going, but those of us who are on the committee are pretty well committed to doing what we can for as long as we can, but we're all getting older. So, you know, all it would take is more deaths. Like in the past um, two years, four very long time members of that committee, one of whom was instrumental in getting it started in 1970, have died. Oh, wow. So, and there are no, being realistic, there are not going to be many people in their 40s or younger joining the committee. So we're all pretty aware that At a certain point, we might have to hang it up and say, okay, you know, like we've carried it on this long, we can't do any more. But, you know, like those on the committee at the moment, you know, are definitely determined to keep it going as long as we can. 
as a matter of fact, I'm one of the people who argues in terms of trying to plan for a legacy. And um, for me personally, I see the St. Jean-Baptiste project as possibly being a good center where the whole Franco community legacy in Lowell could be remembered and celebrated somehow. That's all to be determined. But um, I feel that at some point, you know, we're really going to have to decide whether to close it out completely or to scale back. Because even just this year, we more or less had an event five out of the seven days of uh, Franco week, which is always pegged to the feast of St. Jean-Baptiste. Sure. Um, And uh, it's exhausting, you know, like you're pretty busy because there are fewer of us to deal with it. It's uh, a very busy month or two, and we kind of do a lot of planning throughout the year. So, you know, we're going to be looking at that, deciding every year we say we're going to scale back and then somehow <laughs> we, we manage to fill you sure. know, like five days. Of course, COVID kind of put us out of commission for two years. Sure. Um, all we had last year was the French mass and the flag raising. And uh, that was it. But this year we returned to our pre-COVID behavior (laughs) and kind of filled the whole week and got quite good attendance. The big deal this year was that we were celebrating, we were calling it the 50th anniversary because it would have been the 50th anniversary in 2020 of the committee getting started and uh, having this Franco Festival Week. But, you know, like we were determined because we had done so much planning and because we're aware that so many of the older folks who come to our events are either deceased, frail, moved away to be with children or whatever, that we wanted to go out with a bang, you know? Yeah, so we had our 50th anniversary and we actually got about 150 people to come to that. So it was quite successful in this day and age. Yes, yeah. We filled a very large function room at a local restaurant and uh, Marie-José Duquette was there. Awesome. uh, Representing the Quebec delegation. And one member of our committee is a former city councilor from Lowell, and his dad was a former city councilor and mayor, and he still, he's 93 years old now, and he can still lead everybody in singing O Canada, which he did at the anniversary dinner. His name is Armand LeMay, his son is Curtis LeMay, and, um, you know, they are excellent representatives you know, like of what remains of the Franco committee. So, you know, to answer your question, to go back to the original thing. Yeah. TBD to be determined. But for now, we're still very much there and we'll be starting to plan for next year's events in September. So what do you I'm just curious, what do you have that week? Like, what are the events? 
in the recent past, we've always been kicking off with the French mass said in French uh, on the beginning Sunday of the week. Um, So that's one of the must do events. Sure. A flag raising with the flag of Quebec and uh, the other Franco flags. You know, I I think our president, Kevin Roy, has flags of all the different iterations. He has an Acadian flag. He has the new Franco-American flag. He has obviously the flag of Quebec. But the one that gets raised on the flagpole at City Hall is the Quebec flag. Um, then later that day, whatever that day is, there is a, a Vesper service nice. um, at a local church uh, in honor of St. Jean, Jean-Baptiste. In the past, until one of the recent deaths, there was a man on the committee, the man who helped to start the whole event, who insisted that we have a ham and bean supper, (laughs) which took a lot of work, but he would enlist his whole family to help out. But there was a lot of work for the rest of us, but we're not going to be doing that anymore because it's just so much work and there are so few of us to do the work. So we're trying to figure out ways to kind of get around that. This year and uh, a recent year, we had French Cadrilles. Nice. And yeah, we did that. We have had uh, movies and presentations, etc. So, you know, it all depends what ideas we have, who's available to help in implement them. Sure. Uh, we have had um, for the French Mass last year, Jose Vachon came and sang her devotional songs in French for a half hour before the mass got started. That was very well attended because so many people love hearing Jose sing. She's great. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say musical performances, perhaps films or presentations, always the French mass, always the flag raising at city hall. And then we work from there. Yeah. Very cool. No, that yeah. sounds great. Now, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you were hoping to get to? Just to emphasize what a world unto itself, the French community, and you can identify this with in Manchester as well, but what a world it was for anybody who was Franco-American, particularly if they grew up in the heavily French neighborhoods, you know, like everything was there, social clubs, um, uh, obviously the churches, etc., singing groups. There was a snowshoe group in Drake. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Les Racateurs. That's awesome. Um, yep. And if anybody is really interested, um, there is a website, uh, Franco Lowell or Franco American Lowell. If you Google, you'll probably stumble on it. I could send you the link to it sure. where you can find out anything and you'll see what a rich life it was. Um, just a little statistic, Lowell, for a long time, the ethnic groups in Lowell the Irish American group was the largest, but the, the French Canadian background group was the second largest ethnic group in Lowell through, oh, I would say the 1970s um, when 
everything started, you know, kind of uh, the numbers were decreasing. But it was big. And Lowell's population at its height was something like 130,000. And it's getting to that point now, again, after a long dip down to under 100,000. But it was a big community and a lot was going on there. It was a center of so many things. Um, And there was even uh, a publishing group that put out French music in Lowell. Songs were being written. Uh, The composer of O Canada was living in Lowell for a long time. Right, 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 right. Yeah, Yeah. right. So it it was just a hotbed of cultural things, uh, Franco music that got out to all of New England's Francos. And um, it was something, you know, I kind of wish I had been more connected with it in its heyday. What we see now is a shadow of what was. And, um, you know, we're hoping that somehow um, we can make that clearer as the years go by. Well, that is awesome. This has been a really interesting conversation. Telling the little story with Suzanne Beebe. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Now, if somebody actually wants to look up where to find the events for that Franco-American week, where can we send them? I would say it could always be sent to my address or to a lady named Cecile Preventure or look on that website or okay. the Lowell Franco Facebook site. You know, I can send you all those URLs, et cetera. Yep. We can have Mike post that for sure. Yeah. Good. Awesome. Okay. Well, this has all been right. cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.